A warning to listeners, this story includes graphic descriptions of violence and sounds from body cameras worn by police officers. It may not be appropriate for all audiences. Elijah McLean was a big-hearted young man with a blossoming career when he was stopped by police on the way home from a gas station. He hadn't done anything wrong at all, and at just 140 pounds, he wasn't exactly intimidating. But the police violently subdued him, and now the officers and paramedics involved are going on trial for his death. The jurors have returned to the courtroom and are seated. Please be seated. This is Colorado In-Depth, a podcast of special reporting from CPR News. I'm Rachel Estabrook. Elijah McLean died four years ago. His death brought about reforms to the rules for police in Colorado, and it has put law enforcement in Aurora under state oversight to stop a pattern of racist policing. Today, CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry takes you through how we got here to where officers and paramedics face charges. She explains what Elijah's death has taught Colorado about how to oversee the police and what happens when we don't. Elijah McLean was a son, a brother, a healer, and a musician. Now his ashes are up on a shelf in his mom Shanine's house, surrounded by his pictures. Elijah, he comes by still, you know, he's just in a different form. He's a spirit instead of a human, which is totally understandable, you know. You feel him still? Oh, totally. Yeah. I totally feel him. You talk to him? I, I sure do. Yeah. <laughs> I talk to him. Um, there's times where I could be having a conversation with him and my TV will turn on. Then after the conversation is over, the TV will turn off, you know. Wow. Sometimes while I'm asleep, the TV will turn on and it lets me know that he's stopping by. Mm-hmm. He's stopping by to see how we are. Elijah was like that always thinking about how other people might be feeling. His mom, Shanine, has been fighting for justice in his death for four years, and she's had to lean on his spirit to be able to do it. That's one of the reasons, honestly, why I can keep going the way that I am, because they didn't stop the connection. You know, we're even more connected now. They didn't stop the connection. She's talking about the police officers and paramedics who used force on her son, Elijah McLean, and injected him with a powerful drug. Now, Shanine will be looking to Elijah as those officers and paramedics finally go on trial for his death. In his death, Elijah McLean has become something else. He's now a household name. His death was the catalyst to change the rules for policing in Colorado. Because of him, we've seen officers in other cases get charged with crimes. Murder, assault, standing by as they watch another officer use excessive force. Elijah's death has put bad policing and racist policing under scrutiny in Colorado. And now, it's time for a new level of accountability in his own death. 
The first trial has just started, and through this fall, five people are scheduled to face charges for manslaughter and negligent homicide. This is Colorado In-Depth, a podcast from CPR News. I'm Allison Sherry. I cover the justice beat, and I've been reporting on the aftermath of Elijah's death, the twists and turns that brought us here to this moment. It has been four long years for his family, who've sought justice since police approached Elijah when he was on a peaceful walk home late at night on August 24, 2019. Even if you followed the news for the past few years, even if you marched in those protests in 2020 and chanted his name, you may not remember the unlikely events that have led the officers and paramedics to these courtrooms. On this episode, you're going to hear about Elijah McLean as a young man. You'll also hear about his death, how it changed policing in Colorado, and what's still left undone, which includes getting justice for Elijah. Shanine McLean raised Elijah without his dad being around much. He was the second oldest of her six kids. They grew up without a lot of money. Shanine had a series of different jobs, including driving for Lyft. They moved around a lot and sometimes stayed in motels. Elijah was a small guy, 140 pounds as an adult. He was known for his kindness and extreme empathy, someone who literally wouldn't kill a fly. Also, he was curious. You may know that he played the violin. He taught himself how to play and the guitar too. He kept discovering new things. But as Shanine describes it, school wasn't really working for him. It wasn't teaching him enough. He decided to drop out. So after Elijah dropped out at the age of 17, he started reading more. He became more interested in learning. Uh, He got a job at Little Caesars Pizza and he was working there. And when he turned 18, he got his GED. He didn't have to study for the GED. He just took the GED and passed it. As soon as he got his GED, he enrolled into the Denver School of Massage Therapy. And instead of him finishing in 12 months, he finished in seven. Before he got his certificate, the qualification to be a massage therapist, we were, before he even did that, we were actually looking at the kind of, the kind of training he would need so that he himself wouldn't end up homeless. He decided on massage therapy because he was good with his hands. And he had been, when he was a child, we were going to church and um, our bishop had actually prophesied about his hands and she said he had healing hands. She said, look at his hands, they look like he could play the piano. And I was like, okay, that's true. So when he became 18, he got his GED, he went to Denver School of Massage Therapy He had so many people that were repeat customers as massage therapists. And he didn't just work at Massage Envy. He worked at a chiropractic office. He worked in all kinds of areas. But ultimately, he wanted to cruise around the world and work as massage therapist on a cruise ship. He wanted to literally be able to take his vacation and have his, you know, have his fun and work at the same time. Keeping him out of the streets, keeping him out of negative situations, even though being homeless and being poor is a negative situation, we still made it through it. You know, he still ended up wanting to help people. He wanted to give back to people. He wanted to help them heal themselves, teach them how to help them heal themselves. I had an issue with sciatica, 
And he showed me how to help my own body. You know, things. I'm his mom and I should have known that, but he knew it. So him helping me and helping other people was important to him. It wasn't just people that Elijah cared about. He took his musical instruments to animal shelters and played his violin to cats and dogs on his lunch hours because he thought they were lonely. It was clear Elijah thought differently about the world. In the summer of 2019, he was 23 years old. He was living with a family relative. And on a Saturday night in late August, he went out to get iced tea at a Shell gas station near where he was living at the time in Aurora. Someone driving by called 911. They said they saw a guy walking who, quote, looks sketchy. 911, what is the address of the emergency? The caller is identified as Juan. He said it could be a good person or a bad person. He looks sketchy. He might be a good person or a bad person. Yeah. Elijah was wearing a black face mask, the kind people would commonly wear to keep warm. His family said he wore it a lot because he got cold. But the fact Elijah wore it in late August clearly made the caller wary. He described the mask to the 911 operator and noted that he didn't see any weapons. Don't approach him, okay? If you need to, just drive away. I don't want you to go near him. An officer got there as Elijah was walking down the street. He had his drinks from the gas station in a white plastic bag. He was wearing headphones, that mask, and a brown jacket. The officer told him to stop. Hey, stop right there. Stop. 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 I have a right to stop you because you're being suspicious. Turn around. Turn around. Turn around. The officer almost immediately puts his hands on Elijah. Soon, two more officers were there, too. Together, they all surrounded Elijah. The officers said later they often try to, quote, control the situation before the situation needs to be controlled. The officers called in paramedics, who forcibly gave Elijah a drug called ketamine. It's a powerful sedative that first responders have disproportionately used on Black people without their consent outside a hospital. The paramedics injected it into Elijah's shoulder, without knowing how his body would react. They didn't know anything about his medical history. They didn't check him first or look at his vitals. Elijah McLean lost his pulse, was resuscitated, and then taken to the hospital. At the time, Shanine was living in a hotel. She'd been evicted recently because she didn't have enough money to pay the rent. The next day, on Sunday, the police needed to find her to tell her Elijah was in the hospital. So when the police showed up, they, um, they actually went to the lady's apartment that is a family relative. And my daughter and her daughter went on Messenger together. And the police were talking to me through Messenger. And then I eventually gave them my phone number. I, wasn't, I didn't feel comfortable with it, but I gave them my phone number. I was at the hotel with my other children. I was there with my youngest daughter and my youngest son. And the police were adamant about coming to where I was. They didn't want me to get a ride. Um, I told them I could wait for my sister. And they was like, no, we really need to pick you up. They wouldn't give me any information about what had happened to Elijah. And I thought that was real. I thought that was real discouraging. That meant that there was something secretive going on. So they came to the hotel that I was at, and they put me in one police vehicle, and they put my two children in another police vehicle, and there was a police liaison, or the victim's advocate was there also. So it was literally three cars that came to pick me up and drive myself and my children to the hospital. And 
when we got to the hospital, it was it still took another hour or so for them to let me see Elijah. And their explanation was that they needed to have a conference so that they can get everybody together and, and talk about what had happened to them. I, Did they I tell you anything? They wouldn't tell me anything. They just, they were, they were, mom's the word. You know, there was nothing that they would literally disclose to me um, that prepared me for what I saw when I went into Elijah's hospital room. And when we went into his hospital room, he was hooked up to all kinds of machines. His eyes was closed and he wasn't breathing on his own. He was hooked up. They had his body wrapped in a bubble wrap. They had his, um, his middle torso wrapped in bubble wrap. And I found out later that that was when they were, they knew they were about to donate organs. Donating organs was something Elijah had elected on his driver's license. Shanine sat there for days. The police presence was big the whole time, but they didn't tell her much about what happened. There was a nurse that was really nice. He was really nice and informative. He let me know that Elijah had been injected with academy. And that's when I started doing research about it and found out that it was a horse tranquilizer and that it could be used as a daybreak drug and all kind of other things under the scope of ketamine. And, you know, all I kept thinking was like, why would they give my son ketamine? While Shanine was sitting next to Elijah in the hospital, news of the police's violent contact with her son started getting out. It didn't get a lot of coverage, including not here on CPR, to my great regret. At the time, we were doing an investigation on incidents where police had shot people in Colorado. It was an effort at accountability and to figure out why, on average, someone gets shot every week by law enforcement. We spent six months finding patterns and telling the stories of the people who died. Because Elijah wasn't shot, he wasn't part of our investigation. But at the time, the TV station Nine News ran a short story. They talked to Elijah's cousin, Rashia Vale. He doesn't like drama. He's not an aggressor. He gives the, the, like, the most respect to anybody. The police asked Shanine some confusing things in the hospital. The whole time that they were asking me questions, they kept insinuating that it was all Elijah's fault. They asked me, was he, had he ever done drugs? I said, no, he wasn't that kind of person. He was a massage therapist. He kept his body clean. He was a vegetarian. I think it was like maybe two or three months later, once we saw the video, it confirmed all of my fears that they had jumped my son. Video released months later. On August 27th, three days after the police stopped him on the street, Elijah McLean died. In the weeks after, Shanine held vigils for her son in a field across the street from where the police had stopped him. It was dusty and loud, with traffic roaring by along a highway above. She went to a Dollar Tree and bought solar lights and plastic flowers. She had Elijah's body cremated. The Aurora police put out a statement about the encounter with Elijah McLean two days after it happened, while he was still in the hospital. As they'd done with Shanine, the police's statement puts a lot of emphasis on Elijah's actions. 
He resisted contact. He acted agitated. The police statement doesn't attribute any specific action to the officers. It's all stated passively. A struggle ensued, it says. Elijah was taken into custody. Police Chief Nick Metz kept telling the public that the force officers used on McLean and the administration of ketamine was necessary. A Nine News reporter talked to Metz. Chief Nick Metz says at one point there was a struggle between McLean and officers which required a level of physical force to make an arrest. He says a crew with a roar of fire had to give McLean a sedative to calm him down and that on his way to the hospital he suffered a cardiac arrest. That goes by fast, but what the chief is saying makes it sound like Elijah McLean is a big guy who was acting violently and needed to be sedated. They use the word arrest, even though there was no crime, just that 911 call. This is the official story the police gave out in the first few weeks and months after Elijah died. The city government deferred to Metz, and the story didn't really get questioned, except by Elijah's family. But if someone dies in custody, that sparks an outside investigation. A group of investigators started reviewing what happened. The police used that as the reason not to immediately release the body camera footage. So for months, the public had no video to look at, even though the police acknowledged right away that the footage existed. It made it hard for anyone to get answers for Elijah's death. Some people tried. A group of community activists held small protests. The Aurora newspaper reported they also showed up to city council meetings, trying to get more information. About two and a half months after he died, the coroner released the autopsy. It noted he weighed 140 pounds, about 60 pounds less than the paramedics on scene who administered the ketamine had estimated. The autopsy also noted that Elijah had a scant mustache and a few hairs on his chin. It noted he had pierced ears and good teeth. He had chronic asthma. As to what killed him, the pathologist notes that Elijah violently struggled with the police officers. And that officers put him in a chokehold. In the last paragraph, he runs through several options for the cause of death. The pathologist writes that the manner of death may have been an accident. He goes on, it may have been, quote, natural because of Elijah's intense physical exertion in the struggle with the officers, combined with an unusually narrow artery sending blood to his heart. The pathologist says, it may be a homicide if the actions of the officers led to his death. But, he concludes, based on his review, he cannot determine which manner of death is most likely. This finding was devastating for Elijah's mom. Because the coroner's not putting any blame on anyone for Elijah's death, the lack of homicide finding in this original autopsy was a key factor in whether anyone would face criminal responsibility. Uh, First of all, thank you for being here uh, this evening. I'm Nick Metz, Chief of Police with the Aurora Police Department. A couple of weeks after the autopsy was released, Aurora police invited reporters to a press conference on a Friday night, just before Thanksgiving. Chief Metz stood at a podium. It had now been three months since Elijah died. Um, I think it's really important to first say that um, on behalf of the women and the men 
of the Aurora Police Department uh, that we first want to extend our sincerest condolences uh, to Elijah McLean's family. And we certainly He shared the body camera footage so everybody can finally see it. What it shows reveals how deeply the police's story about what happened that night was incomplete and misleading. The footage shows the final moments when Elijah was free and alive. He was peacefully walking home, minding his own business on a sidewalk in front of an apartment building, headphones on, slinging a white plastic bag with iced tea in it. Then the officers put their hands on him almost immediately, within the first nine seconds of reaching him. The footage is how we know Elijah's first words to them were about being an introvert and that he was just trying to go home. No, I am an introvert. Please respect the boundaries that I am speaking. Stop tensing up. Stop. Relax. I'm going home. Relax or I'm going to have to change. You guys started to arrest me and I was stopping my music to listen. Now let go of me. The footage is traumatic to listen to and to see. So I'm not going to play any more of it here, but I'll describe some of what's going on. You can hear an officer accuse Elijah of reaching for one of their guns, though even at the time, the other officers weren't sure which gun he was supposedly reaching for. They restrain his arms and push him against a wall. They crank his shoulder back until it pops several times. They put him in a carotid chokehold, and he briefly passes out. He throws up a few times into the mask, but his arms are in handcuffs, so he can't take it off. He repeatedly cries. He tells the officers he can't breathe. He pleads with them that he's just going home. My name is Elijah McLean, he says, and I'm just going home. He is sobbing. Officers keep telling him to relax, to chill. He continues to cry. I'm an introvert, and I'm just different, he says. I have no gun, he cries. I don't do that stuff. I don't do any fighting. I don't eat meat. I don't judge people. But they're not listening to him. They never really stopped to talk to Elijah at all. At the beginning, they never said, hey, what did you say your name was? Where are you headed? Do you mind if we stop and talk to you for a minute? And at no point do you hear anyone on the scene say, what are we doing? Why do we have him pinned to the ground? Nobody has questioned what was happening on the scene. At no point did anyone say, this guy is not suspected of any crime. He is no danger to us or to society. It's like these kinds of interactions are so routine that police and even their supervisors on scenes dehumanize people like Elijah that they're interacting with, particularly when they're black or other people of color. Instead, the officers talk to each other about Elijah's super strength and the holds they're going to use to restrain him. They also declare their intention to give him ketamine before the medical professionals, the paramedics, even arrive. While he's on the ground with an officer leaning on him and several more gathered around, the paramedics administer the extra-large dose of ketamine into his shoulder. At one point on the body camera, you can hear an officer threaten to bring out a dog. 
That's the one part of this whole thing that the Aurora police readily apologized for pretty soon after it became public. A lot of the video is actually hard to see. The camera supposedly fell off the officers, which they maintain was not intentional. But you can see the moment paramedics tell the officers on the scene that Elijah lost his pulse in the ambulance. The officers looked shocked. At the press conference, right after they show the video, Chief Metz announces that the district attorney has decided not to charge the officers involved in Elijah's death. The district attorney, Dave Young, doesn't speak that night. He only submitted a written letter. It says there's not enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that anyone committed a crime that led to Elijah's death. It says, specifically, that since the autopsy doesn't determine a cause of death, he'd have trouble convincing the jury it was a homicide. Case closed. The three officers that were involved were placed on administrative leave, and that is our policy. Uh, each officer then goes through a reintegration program. Uh, they are designed, this is designed to promote healthy return to duty. All the officers, involved officers, have since returned to duty. And you'll have the... Those the officers had been paid during this leave and now had already returned to duty. Chief Metz took questions from reporters. How do you feel the officers handled this? Was this, do you think this was the best handling of the situation? As the chief, how do you assess this? Was this a good job? Do you give this a thumbs up? What, what's your I, I, think, I think there were, I think overall the officers did a good job. I think the officers overall, um, you know, you heard the conversations with them. Uh, I think overall the officers were trying to uh, calm Elijah down. I think in every single situation... He tells the reporters that he's asked high-ranking people in the police department to review how the officers acted, to see if they think the officers did anything wrong. A few months later, in early 2020, that review board put out its findings. It said the officers acted consistently with their training. They did the right thing, the board said. By this time, before any real scrutiny had come down on the police department, Chief Nick Metz had retired. He told the Denver Post he'd been, quote, fortunate to run his agency without a lot of interference. The newspaper said Metz retired on his own terms. So how did we go from there to now, where officers and paramedics are facing criminal charges that they killed Elijah McLean? And the culture of the Aurora Police Department itself is also on trial. In the spring of 2020, outrage about all the black men and women who'd been killed and brutalized by police around the country boiled over. The public demanded news coverage and accountability for these actions in the wake of George Floyd's murder in Minnesota. One of these protests happened on a really warm late spring day in downtown Denver. Crowds of people were chanting and walking from Civic Center up Colfax Avenue. We were in the middle of the pandemic. It was a Saturday, and I was there talking to people. Mostly, I wanted to hear about their experiences or perceptions of police. 
It was one of the many protests that were happening at the time in Denver and Aurora. While I was walking with people, I ran into Mari Newman, who's a civil rights lawyer in Denver. She's kind of a fiery woman with a head full of curly red hair. She said, you need to do more stories about the local George Floyds in Colorado, specifically about Elijah McClain. She said, he's Colorado's George Floyd. His family had been grieving and demanding answers for almost a year. And then people started paying more attention to what happened to him. And that included me. Shanine didn't go to a lot of the protests. She preferred other ways of advocating for her son. But on June 2nd, outside the state capitol, she was there. Hey, can you hear me? I'm Elijah McClain's mom. Elijah's a native of Colorado. Can I tell you how much it hurt me to see y'all rally for somebody in another state, but not for my son last August? Can I tell y'all that? I'm appreciative that you guys are out here now. Maybe you guys were a little too busy in August last year. But he needs y'all now still. They got, they got away with murder. Y'all hear me? They got away with murder. So what y'all gonna do about that, Colorado? What y'all gonna do about that, Colorado? We'll see, won't we? After nearly a year of being ignored and the case essentially being closed in Aurora, Elijah McLean's death got worldwide attention. Shanine would meet Brianna Taylor's family. She was killed by police in Kentucky after they botched a raid on her apartment. The families united in their quest to get justice for their kids and to change policing. One of the biggest sports stars in the world at the time, Naomi Osaka, put Elijah's name on a face mask she wore at the U.S. Open. During the tournament, Osaka, who has a Japanese mother and a Haitian-American father, donned seven masks, each bearing the name of a black person who was killed. Brianna Taylor, Elijah McClain, Ahmad Arbery, Trayvon Martin, George Floyd, Philando Castillo. The point is to make people start talking. And those are some of the headlines. Osaka won the tournament, attracting more attention to Elijah's story. Artists from across the country and other parts of the world made tributes to Elijah. And here in Aurora, there was a special kind of vigil. A Grammy-nominated violinist flew to Colorado from the East Coast. Along with a friend, he invited people to play Elijah's chosen instrument, out in a field with police choppers circling overhead. It wasn't just the protests and remembrances. Five million people signed a Change.org petition demanding justice for Elijah. Calls, emails, handwritten letters started pouring into Aurora from around the world, 
to anyone in elected office to get justice for Elijah McClain's death. At some points, they come in at a rate of one every eight to 15 seconds. Daphna Michelson Janae represents Aurora in the State House. Quite frankly, the outpouring here, I have not received this many emails on any other issue in the entire time I've served in the legislature. And we've, we've handled some major issues, the red flag law, for example, uh, vaccines, things that really bring people out. Not one single issue has brought me more emails than specifically Elijah McClain. I look at what's happening as that tipping point for the change that we need. It absolutely was a tipping point. Quickly, a bill to strengthen accountability for police in a bunch of fundamental ways became the top priority for legislators. It wasn't just the uproar over Elijah's death that spurred it. As lawmakers sat in session, instances of bad policing were happening right out in front of the Capitol building, when police fired chemical weapons and rubber munitions into peaceful protests. It all led to one major piece of legislation. It happened fast, and it included a few reforms that activists had been pushing for for years, rights that people in the community thought they shouldn't have to fight for. The legislation required body cameras. It put limits on using force, including banning chokeholds. Among other things, it makes it easier for people to sue police if their rights are violated. Colorado became the first state in the country to tackle wholesale police accountability reform in the wake of George Floyd's murder. It was extraordinary to see a lot of Republicans, in addition to Democrats, support these changes. State Representative Leslie Harrod was the main person behind this bill. Too often we had just seen officers who had acted harmfully in our communities just walk away scot-free, and that just shouldn't happen. Or they resigned from one agency and then went to work at another one. That's another thing that the bill does, is it makes sure that these officers can't work in Colorado as a law enforcement officer again. Ideally, we have less use of force in our communities. That's what we're getting at. And when we see officers step out of line and act above the law, they will be held accountable and those families will get justice. So Elijah McClain's death transformed the rules for police in meaningful ways in Colorado. In addition to the new law, there was a pretty big shift among prosecutors on holding officers accountable. District attorneys were way more willing to charge officers for misconduct, whether it was shooting and killing someone, using excessive force, or failing to intervene when another officer was out of line. They were taking misconduct to grand juries. I hadn't ever seen as many law enforcement officers in court, as defendants, as frequently as I started to then. But for people like Shanine, who was watching all of this as an advocate, this cultural shift was bittersweet. You know, it's crazy to think that all the laws that should have been in place had to Elijah had to lose his life in order for them to be in place. It's hard to think that the amount of humanity that we have toward each other, we don't have enough of it until something else happens, until something else bad happens. Unfortunately, as humans, we our lives tend to change by either birth or death. And it's never an in-between. You know, something drastically has to happen in order for us to change our ways. 
there's all these policies that are being changed, but there's still police officers that are doing the wrong thing. So as a whole, I'm I'm not sure how much of that I can change, whether I interact with Aurora Police Department or not, because it, it's an individual choice to be good or bad. And none of those changes, both culturally and in actual law, directly addressed Elijah's death and whether anyone would be held accountable for it. So, at the end of June 2020, amid the protests, Governor Jared Polis decided to reopen the case. He gave the state attorney general, Phil Weiser, the unprecedented power to investigate and prosecute officers and paramedics involved in Elijah McLean's death. It was an unheard-of move from the state's highest elected official. It signaled that the outrage on Elijah McLean's behalf changed the minds of people who had the power to do something. Just over a year later, Weiser announced indictments. After careful and thoughtful deliberation, the grand jury returned a 32-count indictment against Aurora police officers Randy Rodima and Nathan Woodyard former Aurora police officer Jason Rosenblatt, and Aurora Fire Rescue Paramedics Jeremy Cooper and Peter Chikuniak for their alleged conduct on the night of August 24, 2019, that resulted in the death of Mr. McLean. Five men with their hands on Elijah that night are charged with felonies, manslaughter, and criminally negligent homicide. All but one of them are also charged with assault. Shanine had long hoped they would all go to prison. When she heard about the charges, she was overwhelmed. I'm shocked at the amount of counts, um, honestly, and I'm happy um, for my son's justice. I'm happy that Elijah's getting his justice. She said she was grateful for what Attorney General Phil Weiser had done. Like everyone on his team, everyone at the grand jury that sat through all of that information, all that evidence, and watched the videos over and over again, I appreciate, I appreciate them tremendously. During the grand jury's deliberations, where they ultimately decided to charge the officers and paramedics, there was a key change from what we'd known about this case. I got a tip last year that Elijah McLean's autopsy had been amended during the grand jury investigation, which is normally very secretive. As a news organization, CPR requested that new autopsy, but the Adams County coroner said it was part of the investigative file of this case and she wasn't going to release it. So Colorado Public Radio sued her, the Adams County coroner, and we ultimately won that case. She gave us the autopsy. And that's when we found out the autopsy was changed from an undetermined cause of death to death by ketamine. Earlier this year, all of the officers and paramedics pleaded not guilty to the charges of manslaughter, homicide, and assault. With the first trial just starting, how Elijah died and who's to blame for that, is the entire question juries will have to consider. In court hearings leading up to this, all five defendants had already begun to point fingers at each other. 
The officers blame the paramedics, since officially Elijah died from ketamine. The paramedics were last on the scene, and they were told to give it to him. Elijah had already been beaten up when they got there. The prosecutors will say, if it wasn't for all five of them and their individual behaviors, Elijah would still be alive. But the legal responsibility for Elijah's death isn't all that's on trial. Beyond the laws the officers and paramedics allegedly broke, independent investigators found mistakes they made, basically from the moment they came in contact with Elijah. And those mistakes were symptoms of huge problems inside the Aurora Police Department. They had a pattern of racist policing that they're still trying to overcome today. Just a couple weeks after the grand jury formally charged officers and paramedics in Elijah's death, the attorney general spoke again. He said the Aurora Police Department had done the same kinds of things repeatedly and systematically for years. Our investigation included extensive data analysis and direct observation. The attorney general's office had done a, quote, patterns and practices investigation which was the first of its kind in Colorado. Weiser was given this authority by the law that passed in the height of the protests in summer 2020. We attended over nine months of weekly force review board meetings, and we observed how Aurora evaluates the conduct of its officers. They rode along with officers, read thousands of reports, and interviewed residents and people in law enforcement. The conclusion, Weiser said, was clear. Specifically, we found that Aurora Police has a pattern and practice of racially biased policing, treating people of color and black individuals in particular differently from their white counterparts. Second, Aurora Police has a pattern and practice of using excessive force. We observed officers using force to take people to the ground without first giving them adequate time to respond, even though it The findings read like a playbook for how officers handled their encounter with Elijah McClain, including how they used ketamine to subdue him. Our investigators observed a consistent pattern of illegal ketamine administration. Weiser went on, Aurora police had not meaningfully reviewed officers' use of force. And they did not get rid of the officers who violate their own policies or the law. Those are some of the reasons this kind of misconduct had festered for so long. The findings justify the community's skepticism about the department. And they wouldn't have come to light without those protests on the streets in 2020. The fact that Weiser's investigation was even happening was because of Elijah McLean's death. For the first time, the state dissected the practices of a specific police department. It also set out a roadmap to make things better. Aurora agreed to five years of oversight to improve its policing. All of this appeared to mark a watershed moment for policing in Colorado. But the attorney general's revelations about Aurora's track record were not surprising at all to a community that had tried to draw attention to the racist policing going on there. Phil did not present anything that he did not know, that we did not know, that the officers of Aurora Police Department did not know. Um, What he did, though, was actually put some teeth 
into what we knew. And Hashim Coates is a political strategist and community activist. He heard warnings about police when he was young, growing up in northeast Denver. Aurora has always been that scary place. I remember when I was 16, getting my license. Do not drive to Aurora. If you go to Aurora, be careful. You know. Right now, as a resident of Aurora, he's not seeing the changes in policing you might expect. The state's oversight and the new laws for police conduct aren't adding up for Hashim. I don't think it's better. Uh, for lots of reasons. I mean, you don't change years of culture in three years, two years. Um, it, how far does it take to run out of a forest? You know, halfway, you run halfway in, halfway out. You can do he says, yes, officers are sometimes facing charges now. Like two years after Elijah died, when Aurora police beat up and strangled a black man who was just sitting on the ground talking to some other guys. Those officers faced criminal consequences and no longer work at the police department. So that's punishment that's different. It's not the policing that's different. If the policing had been different, he wouldn't be traumatized. It's much harder to change a whole culture and to proactively change how officers behave than it is to punish them after the fact. Exploring the details of how much has changed and whether oversight of the Aurora police has made any difference will take hours on its own. And it goes far beyond Elijah's story. So for now, I'll say, since Aurora agreed with the attorney general's office two years ago to change how it polices, they've missed some deadlines to make that happen. For example, the people overseeing the reforms said Aurora was still not scrutinizing its own uses of force critically enough. How much the police in Aurora actually change their culture and their behavior comes down to who is driving that change and whether they'll truly make community trust and safety their top priority. Yes, the attorney general has legal authority to keep pushing the Aurora Police Department to be better but someone actually has to make the change happen. When Weiser made this announcement and unveiled these findings, Aurora had a police chief who said she was open to them. But less than a year later, she got fired. She was let go, explicitly because, the city manager said, she didn't have the trust of officers. Because, they say, she spent too much time out of the office talking to the community. Aurora's current interim police chief is Art Acevedo. He's led a lot of big city police departments around the country, and he came in talking about reform. We asked him recently how the police are doing in changing their ways. He said, like every other police department he's been at, it's a work in progress. Our department is better than the critics would have you believe, but it certainly isn't perfect, which was some may want to think. It is a department that we don't need to be torn down and rebuilt. We've got good bones here, right? This is not a teardown. He says he wants to make it better. Of course, he also talked about how hard it is to be a police officer right now. He insists most officers in Aurora want some of the same things that their biggest critics do. They want good policing. They want people to be held accountable, and they want to make sure that we're consistent. Clear our expectations, consistent in the way we treat people when they fall short. Mm-hmm. 
Shanine McLean has continued her fight for accountability for Elijah's death. She and other families sued Aurora. The city agreed to pay what was the largest known settlement for police violence in the history of the state, $15 million. That day, we talked to Shanine on a cell phone, so I don't have tape from it. But she said she felt numb. She told me, I wish Elijah was here now and I didn't have this pile of money. But, she said, what the settlement communicated is that Aurora was accountable for her son's death. The settlement money has also turned out to open the door for other families to demand even more accountability when their own loved ones have been killed by police in Colorado. The attorney who worked with Shanine then is a prominent civil rights lawyer in Metro Denver, someone who often represents families in their quests for justice against law enforcement. His name is Kisser Mohammedbai. A couple years ago, as we were starting to see things change in police accountability, with more officers getting charged, Kisser described emphatically the difference he thinks Elijah's death has made in changing the way some people look at these incidents. We've had large payouts with taxpayer dollars in the past. We've had large verdicts in the past, and we've had policy changes, incremental, but, but some. But what Elijah did was he started to change the hearts of our community, where people began to see what folks have been saying for a long time. They started to hear what folks have been saying a long time, which is there is violence against communities of color. And oftentimes, those who are survivors and victims of this police violence are completely innocent. People heard the message in 2020. But Hashim, the advocate, is realistic about where things stand now. He's disappointed because the moment seems to have passed when the public and people in charge would be outraged enough to keep the momentum going from the movement that was sparked in 2020. Because I'm seeing that people are back to lives as usual. The collective energy is gone. The fact is, society as a whole mostly failed during Elijah's encounter with police and paramedics. No one on the scene spoke up. No supervising sergeant came and told everyone to calm down. Just let this person who had committed no crime go. Then the checks and balances that should be prosecutors and coroners and the criminal justice system, they also failed to see how his death shouldn't have happened. People then tried to make up for these shortcomings. In protests and new laws and online petitions, the news media, too, has spent three years trying to make up for not focusing more on this story initially, failing in our role as another check and balance. Despite the work of the community to change the status quo, the danger is that things could go back to the way they were. That default where people in charge don't question the police's actions. Shanine says she'll never live in Aurora again. She's in Denver now. For her, true justice goes beyond criminal responsibility in Elijah's death. Moving forward, I want all the laws to be changed so that it doesn't happen to anybody anymore, not just in the state of Colorado, but all around the world. As his mom, this is going to be my 
my mission for the rest of my life. Some people get to walk away from it like it's a job. Some people get to turn the page like it's another news news article. But this is something that is my mission as his mom to fight for Elijah's justice. For the next few months, she plans to be in the courtroom in person as much as she possibly can. She expects, though, she'll be there alone. She says no one who knew Elijah when he was alive has indicated that they'll be there. So she'll likely sit next to reporters and lawyers, hearing about her son's last moments on Earth. reporter Allison Sherry. Follow coverage from her, Tony Gorman, and the rest of the CPR News team throughout the trials at CPR.org. And sign up for the Lookout newsletter so you never miss a story. This episode of Colorado In-Depth was reported by Allison. It was written by her and by me, Rachel Estabrook. I produced and edited it. Mixing, sound design, and scoring by Emily Williams. The executive producers are Kevin Dale, Sharkia Wedgworth-Hollowell, and Brad Turner. Thanks also to Allison Borden, Kibway Cooper, and everyone at CPR News and Denverite whose reporting contributed to this story. To get all of CPR's special reporting, follow Colorado In-Depth in your favorite podcast app. This is CPR News. <laughs>